It is Locked On NBA Thursday edition. Lock and Golliver. Golliver's in the bubble. Are you like, do you push on the bubble? Does it like, do you bounce around like those guys in the halftime shows? What's what's the bubble? What's the feeling in the bubble, Ben Golliver of the Washington Post? Well, I think this Orlando weather, it's kind of a sweaty feeling, to be honest. You know, it's a little bit of a frenzied feeling because we're trying to figure out where are these practices being held? What time do you have to show up? You know, the, the teams are trying to decide you know, who they want to make available, and they kind of tell us last minute. Um, so it's been, um, you know, certainly an acclimation adjustment type of process here, but it's a good kind of stress because there's a payoff to it, right, which is that they're making it through this testing phase with nobody positive so far. They have now rolled the basketballs out and held some scrimmages that felt uh, an awful lot like real games, you know, with uh, star-level players like Kawhi Leonard and Paul George taking the court. They made it through, uh, you know, the first uh, day of games unscathed. And I got to say, sitting there in person, watching it, walking around the court, taking videos and pictures beforehand, uh, there was a, a real, uh, you know, uh, lightness to my step. You know, I, I hopped to my step. I was feeling great. We watched basketball today. Like we, this is the podcast for everybody to watch basketball. And I don't know if you noticed this, Ben, but in the last game, they added fans. When Miami and Sacramento were playing, they turned the big screen into fans cheering for the first time. So we're seeing the league like implement all these new little pieces into the broadcast and the different elements of it. That's fascinating. I did get a chance to see that, but I did notice that some of the elements that you're talking about trying to establish a home court advantage, like during the Clippers game, they had the big video screens along the back of, uh, you know, behind the benches were showing Clippers logos and players' names when they would score. And then when the Magic had the ball, there would be like uh, piped in defense, defense uh, type chance. Now, obviously, I'm sure that was coming through on the TV as well, but uh, the players could hear it. You know, it was obviously, you know, in their mind frame. So they're trying to do little things here to make it just not feel like a summer league environment. My biggest takeaway from the entire scene, though, is, you know, they call the the main building um, that they play in the arena here. And that's going to be where they hold the finals and the conference finals, assuming that they're able to keep this thing going. And, you know, it, it to me, it almost didn't even feel like an arena. It, it felt like a set. It really felt like a television set. You had these huge lights, you know, shining down onto the court, sort of like those Staples Center lights for the Lakers games that kind of give you that, uh, that production and TV quality. You had uh, very few in-person cameramen. You actually had a lot of sort of either robot cameras that were sort of on uh, dollies going back and forth on the court or otherwise just kind of placed on the basket other directions. It really felt, I don't know if it's a reality TV show set or, you know, like a sitcom set. It kind of felt like a Warner Brothers lot as compared to a, uh, you know, a basketball arena. If you go behind the television screen, um, and, you know, see what's back there. There's all these uh, boxes sort of like in various states of being emptied. There was exercise bikes back there. There was just all sorts of like junk. It was almost like a garage sale right behind that screen on television. So they, they were converting this space on the fly. I thought they did a pretty impressive job with it, whether it was the, you know, the, the rap music and the DJs that they had, uh, you know, kind of playing within the arena, whether it was just the television screens that were showing ads, but also uh, the graphics that I mentioned earlier, it was a pretty intense sensory experience, even without a crowd there. I, I want to go through this step by step. You went to the first game today. We've had games today. I want to, sh- uh, you know, uh, here on Locked on NBA, as games are now starting, make sure this is your stop. 30 minutes every day, recapping last night's action and getting you the biggest stories 
of the uh, of the NBA right here on Locked on NBA. Ben is in the bubble. We'll be checking in with him every Thursday. So I wanted to share because I think you probably know some of this stuff, but I was on the uh, two, about out 90 minute NBA broadcast call for broadcasters. It was pretty incredible. There's some aspects of it they've asked us to keep confidential, but I think I'm allowed to share a fo- few of the notes. You may already know these, Ben, but uh, for those who don't, in the arena, 36 microphones under the court to try to accentuate the sound of the players playing. Four different mics on each basket. These are things that they've always wanted to do, but they couldn't do because you can't put 36 mics under 30 floors. It's too expensive. So a lot of things that suddenly, because there's only one floor, that they're able to do this. Um, They've created sound noise from each fan base from each arena. So if you're a jazz fan and you're listening to a game and the sound is coming out, it's actually sound from Vivint Smart Home Arena. In the same game, if you're the Pelicans, this is the first game we'll have, it could be sound from Smoothie King Center. They have a person mixing four different audio feeds so that actually, I believe, the New Orleans Pelicans TV broadcast and the Utah Jazz TV broadcast could get different audio feeds on a given game. That's wild, man. And, you know, it's funny because I actually asked Lou Williams, like, do any of these things impact the players? Like, are they noticing it? Because it's not like it felt like Staples Center because the Clippers were the designated home team today. But there was elements that reminded me of a Clippers game at Staples Center. Now, of course, there's no mascot. There's no cheerleaders. There's no stunt team. There's no Steve Ballmer chest bumping anyone. There's no T-shirts kind of being flung into the stands, right? But it did still kind of feel, whether it was the music or whether it was the graphics, it kind of felt a little bit like uh, home for the Clippers. And he said, you know what, once you're actually playing, you don't really notice it. Uh, He said, I'm not sure who they're doing all those things for, for, but it's not for us. I think he's right. I think it is for the viewer at home who wants to still feel engaged in some way with the team that he's accustomed to watching in the same or, or her accustomed to watching in the same way that they're usually accustomed to watching it. Right. And I think the audio part and also the visual elements goes a long way. It's so much better than having an empty backdrop and just uh, organic noise. And there's a lot of people who were arguing, Oh, just let's hear the sneaker squeaks and the trash talk and nothing else. And that never made sense to me. I think you have to have a full uh, sensory experience. If you're going to be luring in, Uh, people, especially casual fans uh, in particular. The other thing that uh, I would share with you, uh, and I haven't seen this yet, but today, so again, they said, hey, we're working these various things in through 33 scrimmages. Like, this is not a, like, walk before you run game. They are running before they're walking. And they're going to use these 33 scrimmages to change the effects and to work on how it sounds and things of that nature. I mean, we're even seeing in the fourth game of the scrimmage the fourth game today suddenly features that we didn't see in the first game, which yes, I've watched all of them. Uh, the other ones that I thought were really interesting. If I understood correctly is if I'm watching a game, the, they will take virtual, like they will use virtual imaging to make the courts look like the court in each viewer's home court. So again, let's use Utah and New Orleans If in the first game that the Utah fan will be watching this game on the Utah feed. They'll get by virtual signage onto the court. They'll get the Utah court and New Orleans will see their home court. That's wild. I didn't realize that either. But again, it goes back to the customization element where, uh, you know, you've got to have people who, you know, you're trying to convince these fans also 
to buy tickets again for future seasons, right? I mean, it could be next year. It could be the year down the line. Eventually, some of these uh, these measures are going to be aimed towards retention. This idea that, hey, like we have these buildings, they're waiting empty right now because we can't sort of legally or ethically fill them with fans. But don't worry, uh, this place still exists. And at some day down the road, you're going to be able to come back to it. I think it's really smart. I think it's really savvy. Um, it makes a lot of sense. The last one, it's the most incredible one, and I, I, I don't have my numbers exactly right. You, this could be a good Washington Post story when the uh, conference finals or finals happen. I believe they have about, my numbers are slightly off, but I believe they have 36 cameras that are going to be used for the, those games. And of those camera positions, only four of them have ever been used before. Yeah, see, I was noticing that, too, because the only cameraman who I could actually spot who was regularly shooting was basically sitting on a chair near midcourt, giving you that classic kind of half-court angle that we're used to when, when a team sets up into its offense. Um, the Dolly camera was obviously new for an uh, in-person experience, at least where they were locating it. They had some higher-up cameras um, that looked to be a little bit lower than they normally would be, like the concourse level in a, in a major NBA arena. They were below that because the space just really isn't as big. And I think that's one of the benefits of having a smaller space is that you can get a lot of cameras, um, you know, really close to the court because you don't have to make any concessions at all because there are no courtside fans. There are no VIPs or, or luxury boxes that you're trying to work around. It's basically like I'm saying, it's a TV set uh, that, that they're working with. So, um, you know, other than basically two ball boys who are wearing gloves and masks on the baseline, that's pretty much everybody who was near the court other than the two team benches and then everybody who's inside that plexiglass scores box where they're keeping score and, and, and keeping track of time and everything else. That's it. Everybody else is a removed from the court, so there's plenty of uh, high-quality high kind of primo angles available. What is it like to go to a game in the bubble? Ben Golliver will take us step-by-step what it was like to go to the first game in the bubble. And Ben Golliver and I's favorite stat our own personal little number it happened today in scrimmages we'll get to that it's all coming <laughs> up on locked on nba today's show brought to you by rockauto.com if you're a do-it-yourselfer rockauto.com is a place no more of these chain stores that have different price tiers for professionals compared to do-it-yourselfers the price is the same for everybody and they're reliably low rock auto always offers the lowest prices possible rather than changing prices based on what the market will bear like airlines do rock auto is for everyone and does not require membership or account login rockauto.com is a family business serving audio part customers online for 20 years go to rockauto.com to shop for your auto or body parts with hundreds of manufacturers and get what you need it's easily navigatable it's a basic old school site and it's there for you rockauto.com right locked on in their how did you hear about us category so they know you heard about it from locked on amazing selection reliably low prices all the parts your car will ever need rockauto.com Ben Golliver, Washington Post, is with us. You can get Ben's work at WashingtonPost.com. He's in the bubble. You can also subscribe to Ben's newsletter by going to Ben Golliver on Twitter. His pinned tweet will take you to the link. Subscribe to his weekly newsletter at WashingtonPost.com. All right. The first game today, I think, took place at, like, what? About 2 o'clock Eastern? Is that, is that about right? Something. Around? I think it was 3 o'clock Eastern, yeah, but I, I got there right around 2 just to see what the pregame scene was like. All right, take me through, like, like how, take me through it. Like, you left your 
hotel room at what time? It takes you how long? How do you get in the arena? Yeah, so I probably left right a little bit before 1.30. I took a, uh, a shuttle bus, which takes about 10 or 15 minutes to get to um, the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex. There's a couple different um, arenas set up over there. One's called the Visa Center. One's called uh, the Arena, like I mentioned. The main uh, arena that you want to be playing at, I guess, is called the quote-unquote The Arena. Um, when I walked in, you, you come in on the ground floor, so it's sort of like coming in by the loading dock. Um, and there's a, a big black curtain right in front of you that you're greeted by security, but it's a real quick process. Basically, you swipe your magic band. That gives you a little green light. You get to walk in. As soon as you're in the building, there's hardly anyone there, again, because you know they're trying to keep all the personnel down as much as possible. So you see a cleaning crew here and there. You see a few Disney security officers here and there. But that's pretty much it, other than NBA personnel, whether it's PR people or, or, or people like that. Um, I, there's a big black curtain. So I just pulled that black curtain back and here it is. Boom. Uh, this television set, you walk through the, the, the tunnel or the concourse. You're basically courtside immediately. It's a much smaller space than a typical arena because they don't have to worry about crowds at all. It, they basically are using, I, I would imagine roughly half of the, the floor blueprint of a typical arena because uh, they don't have uh, the, the lower level 100 seats to worry about at all. So it's all really pretty condensed um, on one side of the court would be the media side. So in the corner, um, not too far away from the court, maybe 10 or 15 feet begins the media section, which is elevated slightly, you know, three or four rows for media. There were actually scouts there and I was talking to them and they're like, yeah, I mean, this makes our job a lot easier. We can hear the play calls. We can look right at the coaches and see what the, the hand motions are and, Sure enough, in the second half, you know, Steve Clifford's yelling out, Memphis, Memphis, and that's one of his play calls. And you know, here they go, and, and the scouts are jotting their notes. Um, there was a little bit of floor seating, mostly for PR people or other uh, just kind of staff on hand, maybe 15 seats spread out for them. Um, and then that was, you know, relatively it for that side of the court. On the player side of the court, you have the benches, which were spread out, um, you know, socially distant. Each seat had its own personalized hydration station so they're not sharing the big Gatorade coolers or anything like that guys have their own individual water bottles uh, attached to their seats those seats are spread out in socially distanced fashion inactive players like Jonathan Isaac wore masks active players obviously didn't have to wear masks and the front row coaches also didn't need to wear masks back row coaches uh, did wear masks and then in between the two benches you had you know really what looked like a hockey penalty box with big plexiglass uh, walls inside that area was the scorekeeper, uh, you know, team PR officials, uh, you know, shot clock operator, 24 second shot clock operator, and a few other people uh, in there. You know, I think it was a total of 14 people inside that penalty box. And that's pretty much it. The two ball boys on the end line, the one cameraman near center court, um, you know, a few other people here and there capturing content. Uh, but that was, pretty much the whole scene. It reminded me of that phrase, like, you know, are you an essential worker or, you know, a non-essential worker? I think that they pretty much tried to make this as essential of a basketball experience as possible. Like who do you really need to have there? Oh, I should have mentioned the three refs, you know, Zach Zarba was there uh, throwing up the tip uh, and, you know, he had the two other uh, referees as well, you know, past that, that's pretty much everybody who's in the building. And as far as I could tell, the, the game came off without a hitch. 
So you're there an hour before the game. If I'm at a game an hour before, Ron and I actually do a little feature on the floor, which means the last groups, the most important players are warming up in their workouts. So, you know, if the Jazz, it would be Donovan Mitchell and Joe Ingles. If it's, you know, the Pelicans, using the same analogy we've used all night, it's probably Brandon Ingram and Drew Holiday. They're doing their, depending on, you know, each player has their own routine, they're, they're doing their final workouts. What was it like an hour before the game when you're there? Um, it was fairly similar. I mean, a lot less people. So, like, at Staples Center, you know how it gets on the baseline. So 20 people are there to take video of, you know, Donovan Mitchell's in town. You got all, all these people with cell phone cameras taking photos and videos of him. And, um, you know, same deal with, like, Paul George or Kawhi Leonard. I mean, they're going to be hounded by the, the, you know, the NBA version of paparazzi. Here, there's basically no courtside presence hardly at all. You know, I walked in and, you know, I tried to take a couple of pictures on the baseline. They said, no, actually just move over to the sideline. They kind of want to keep the media on the sideline off of the court entirely, which, you know, makes total sense. They're trying to protect the players. Um, you could easily, you know, freely walk up and down the sideline, no problem. You know, a guy like Chris Haynes was there. Uh, my buddy, you know, Mark Medina was there a little bit earlier. You know, a few riders took their seats early. Um, but, you know, otherwise, it's just a quiet, very mellow atmosphere, uh, even quieter by far than Summer League. I mean, the only thing you could compare it to would be like Summer League you know, 10 or 12 years ago in, in maybe that smaller gym where it's just, uh, you know, not much else going on besides the sneaker squeaks. Uh, you know, Paul George was out there early warming up. You got some video of him in kind of a typical fashion. He's out there with Sam Cassell, you know, playing their typical one-on-one -on -one games. You know, Aaron Gordon came out. He was working on these, uh, you know, little lefty uh, hook shots in the paint. Not really sure why he was doing that, but that was uh, his pregame routine. And, and that, you know, that's pretty much it. They went back to the locker rooms when they come out for pregame introductions, you know, they don't have to go through the lines and high five and all that. They just read the players' names, but they do try to do it in a fairly energetic manner for television. You know, Kawhi Leonard actually, before they even did the player introductions, he just went and stood at center court. He was ready to go. He took his spot and just kind of, you know, he, he didn't really participate in the pregame introductions. He was just, uh, you know, basically ready to play basketball after four months off. And uh, that was, you know, sort of the whole pregame. And there wasn't a lot else to it. It's, it's much less pomp and circumstance. They don't dim the lights. They're not playing crazy music. They're not, there's no mascot, like I mentioned. It's just uh, here's who's playing, here's who's starting, um, and uh, let's get the ball up. And there's no national anthem during the scrimmage games. Correct. Absolutely. And that's an interesting one because, you know, do you think that was intentional in terms of are you trying to save time? Or are you trying to avoid controversy or both? Uh, it's, a, it's an open question. All right, so once the game's going on, where did it feel most different? Or do you think that these games end up being absolutely no different than any other NBA game? Well, the players were trying to tell us that they weren't different at all. Uh, that one's it's hard for me to tell. They did get into the action and the rhythm pretty quickly, I thought. I thought it was going to be an uglier game than it wound up being. I mean, Paul George happened to be shooting the ball pretty well, which helped because you know his shot is so pretty. It's like... When he's hitting three-pointers, it just kind of feels like, you know, things are, are back to normal. Uh, but, uh, you know, I would say that the biggest difference for me as an observer is that I could hear uh, some of the trash talk, some of the conversations with the referees, uh, some of the play calls, some of the coaching instructions to individual players. Um, I could make out all of that, and I don't have the world's best hearing. So that, that was definitely different because certainly in a full arena – it's much harder to make those kinds of things out unless it's a, a really big confrontation right in front of you. So that was probably the biggest difference for me. The actual games themselves, they got into a pretty good rhythm early, and um, they, you know, they were cheering each other on. I think that Doc Rivers mentioned how much 
he felt like the Clippers had to generate their own energy. You know, and, and there was one moment, actually, it was, it was really nice. There was a, a passing sequence. The ball got to Joakim Noah on the block, and he made the perfect read out to the right corner for a wide-open three-pointer. And even before the ball had barely left his hand, the entire Clippers bench w- was already cheering because they knew he had made the right read. And remember, he's a newcomer. He hasn't been with that team basically all season. They got him on a 10-day, and they decided to you know, re-sign him and bring him down here. Now, because they don't have Zubak, he gets thrust into the starting role. So he's a really important player for them. They really need the Noah experiment to work, right? He makes this great read, finds the shooter. They're already cheering before the shot even before the shooter gets the ball. He winds up swishing it. Uh, the Magic call timeout, and everybody's mobbing Noah, saying, "You know, great job. You made the right read and everything else." So it was just a real moment where, like, you, your teamwork and your camaraderie had to kind of come together. Your chemistry had to show. And we saw it right there in a scrimmage. Talking to some coaches in the bubble, that's what they've said to me. They think team camaraderie and team togetherness is going to be really evident and super important because of the fact there is no fans. So whether your teammates are engaged and into it is going to not only be evident, as I said, to anyone watching, but also going to be wildly important for these teams. It'll be interesting to watch. Oh, 100%. And I, I really have already started to sense that some teams are just in a different mental headspace. Like, the contenders seem to be in a really good spot. Like, I happened to be able to just kind of, like, hear into the Milwaukee Bucks practice the other night. And they were – I mean, Bud had that thing organized. Let's just put it that way. I mean, they were really going, right? And, and you could tell they're not messing around down here whatsoever. LeBron kind of came out and had that all-business mentality on Monday. Same thing. And with some of these teams, I don't want to call the magic out specifically, but like their body language when they were losing at the end of that fourth quarter, they just kind of look bored and no knock on them. It's a scrimmage game. It doesn't matter. They can still come out and make the playoffs and all that kind of stuff, but they're in a much different situation. Like what do they really have to play for? You know, best case scenario for them is they go out in the first round and they're here, you know, for five weeks in Disney world and it's a a strange environment. Right. Um, I think for some of these teams that are really in it for the long haul, They've already had to make peace with this idea, hey, we're going to be away from our families for a while. We could be down here for three months, but we have a team focus. And I think, uh, you know, we're going to continue to see that. It's kind of a haves and a half not situation, right? If you do have that, that long-term motivation, it's going to be easier to keep your camaraderie. If you don't, I think it's going to be easier to splinter. And there's an interesting twist on this that Ben and I will touch on as we continue. Locked on NBA is your daily podcast on the NBA. Follow it on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and get Locked on NBA every day, giving you last night's actions and what took place, plus the biggest stories in the NBA every single day in 30 minutes. It's Locked on NBA, part of the Locked on Podcast Network. The twist on this, Ben, is that the hotel situation those teams that are really engaged are all in the same hotel and that's adding to their engagement. Whereas the teams that are most likely to go home early are in a, their own hotel. So that it's almost as though there's a subculture inside of each hotel and how seriously people are taking it. It's a fascinating point. Uh, I, unfortunately I have not been able to even look at the second and third hotels, the grand Floridian, and the yacht club because it's sort of off our current property. Now I can see the main hotel, the grand destino tower is right across this lake from where I'm staying as part of the media housing, but I can't walk over there. Of course I would run into a security checkpoint. They, they look at my credentials and say, sorry, man, you've got a red stripe on your badge. You can't go over that direction. So, um, you know, I can see that uh, 
why that would take place, I guess, put it that way, because they are physically separated. They're living totally different existences. I imagine they have access to many of the same amenities, if not all the same amenities. But, uh, you know, certainly the, the physical distance creates a natural, uh, you know, difference in accommodations and happiness and all that kind of stuff. If you want to watch the first half of one game and then go to the second half of the other game, how hard is that to do? Not hard to do at all. You just have to request it in advance. And that's the, the one thing I'm still getting used to is they need 48 hours uh, in advance to know which practices and games you want to go to. But the two courts, uh, you know, the Visa Center Court and the arena here are basically across the street from each other, more or less. I mean, walking distance. So it's, it's not difficult. You take the same bus to go both places. Um, you know, if you wanted to watch, you know, five or six games in a day, I guess in theory you could probably do that, especially early on before they start to whittle into the playoffs. Um, I'll be going to two games tomorrow because the Bucks play and then the Lakers play at the same arena. So I'll be seeing uh, both those teams kind of back-to-back. Of course, they do do a cleaning process between the games, right, of, of the court. So that's really the only hiccup or the only delay. But, uh, you know, it's incredibly time-efficient here because, like, for example, on one day on Monday, 22 teams practiced over, like, seven different facilities around Disney World – and theoretically, as a media member, I could have gone to any of those. Now, there's no way any person could go to 22 in a single day because they're running at the same times in different locations. But if you really wanted to go to like eight different practice facilities to see, uh, you know, teams play, you would be able to do that and, and get their media sessions and everything else. So um, there's never a situation in NBA history where you've been able to do that because, like, even during the playoffs, you might be able to get two both teams in a series, but you can't fly on a plane to go over to a different series and get two more teams. It's just impossible, right? So uh, from that standpoint, there's a lot of picking and choosing that has to be done. I mean, what amazed me, the Milwaukee Bucks, a team that seemed like they were going to win 70 games this season, potentially before the shutdown and and before Giannis twisted his ankle and everything else, they had three reporters at their practice, physically at their practice on Monday night, right? I mean, this is a juggernaut organization. Um, Granted, it's a smaller market, you know, a smaller market team. It's not the Lakers. But still, I mean, three people to show up at your practice when you're that good, it, it just kind of puts everything into perspective. And, you know, for another example, like the Wizards, I believe they went their first two or three days of practice without a single person from the media attending in person. Wow. Uh, do you know what happened on the first day of scrimmages? What's that? We had a purple cow. Oh, I should have known. I should have guessed. Was it Duncan Robinson, your favorite Duncan guy? Duncan Robinson took eight shots. They were all threes. We had a purple <laughs> cow. That is the definition of a purple cow, an outing in which someone takes, what did we say? Was it seven or eight? I can't remember. It's something like that, and all of your shots have to be threes. So, yes, well, we had he, a purple cow. He, he still can shoot. He went five for eight. Do you? Let me ask you. I mean, you, you don't have to feel you know too egotistical here, but do you think he did it for you? Do you think this got back to him and he was just sitting around all quarantine thinking like, how can I make Locke happy? How can I kind of boost the locked on NBA profile of, of podcast. I'm going to go out there and, Hey, it's only a scrimmage. There's no real stakes. I'm just going to, you know, give him a little subliminal love. What do you think? I think so. I think he knows that we're rewarding him for his purple cow. <laughs> um, by the way, purple cow, for those who did not is the reason is he spent his freshman year of college at Williams college, which mascot is the purple cow. And really it's the word, you know, you really can't have a worse mascot than the purple cow. So we're going to honor it. Um, let's go on to basketball floors for a second. Uh, these family emergencies, Zion, Patrick Beverly. There's a third one. I can't think of it. Like it's the in phrase. What's your thought on all this? 
Yeah, it's Montrez Harrell. It's the third one. Man, it's it's tricky because during the season, and you would actually probably be able to speak better to this, but guys are able to leave for family emergencies if it's like a grandmother passing, grandfather issue, an illness, you know, mother, a father, that type of thing. Um, you know, that can kind of be glossed over, covered up, whatever phrase you want to use, without too much difficulty, right? I mean, if, if a guy can leave and come back in 48 hours, sometimes the media never even finds out about it. If they miss a game, obviously that's a little bit different. Um, but here there's just no way to gloss over anything because they have to leave the bubble. Leaving the bubble breaks the quarantine, and it basically starts the player's clock over. So when a player leaves the bubble here uh, to come back, if he's tested while he's gone, he can get back in with a four-day quarantine period. If he isn't tested while he's gone, he has to come back and basically do a 10-day quarantine period, right? So that puts you out during a playoff series almost the whole series if, if the thing comes at the wrong time. So the, the tricky part for us as reporters is that there's very little transparency when it comes to these situations because of all the medical privacy stuff and, and because of all the positive COVID tests. The NBA is not providing a lot of information in these situations. All they're saying is a guy has left or they're even allowing the players in some cases to announce that they're leaving. And they're also not disclosing which players, specific players test positive for COVID. So again, we have no idea if these family situations are related to a particular player or his family member or what it could be. It's just uh, you know a very tricky spot. So at this point, we're all kind of standing around wondering what exactly is going on. We don't have direct access to those players on a daily basis like even if they were here we don't get to talk to every single guy that's just not how the media setup works so um it's challenging it's a little bit frustrating and you can understand if one of these emergencies comes at the wrong time it could completely swing a playoff series there's just no way around that what is your thoughts on anything that you've seen or learned in regards to impact on a basketball court like what like Patrick Beverly leaving like, or what is there something that is basketball related to you that you think is newsworthy? Well, I, I'm still trying to feel that out a little bit. I've asked a couple of coaches what they think. And th- like you're mentioning, the focus has been a lot on team spirit, chemistry, making sure guys are, are comfortable mentally so that they feel like they can perform their best on the court, you know, trying to dig around and ask them, how do you think the crowd's going to change things or, um, you know, how do you think, you know, is it a road game or is it actually a home game? Do you feel like you guys, um, are just on one giant extended road trip. The coaches that I've been hearing don't necessarily want to tip their hands quite yet. And it could be because they're not totally certain. I mean, it's all just new territory for them. So they're trying to kind of feel it out. So the basketball part has been a little bit, uh, a little bit tricky. I think the main thing is uh, conditioning is going to be the biggest factor. Right. And I think that especially with the good teams, you know, just trying to eye the bucks or trying to eye the Lakers, for example, during their practice sessions, it seemed like guys were really fit, you know, and I think that maybe my mind went to a, uh, a darker place or just a more cynical place. And I thought, well, this could be like a lockout year, right? Where guys come back and they're just completely out of shape. And at least from the, the really quality teams, I didn't notice a ton of that. And certainly um, they're going to need to build up their wind. I think Doc Rivers mentioned that in his post-game press conference of just the importance of trying to get game-level conditioning back for these guys and, and having them handle big minutes is going to be a major priority in the first couple of weeks. So I guess I would probably highlight that more than anything, but uh, I wouldn't say there's some big grand reveal about the impact of, uh, you know, coronavirus and, and a bubble on the game in the first day. I think we're still trying to figure that out. Thought the news that they weren't including these games at all into the awards was significant. 
Uh, how do you? What's your thought on that? It took away ten percent of think, the season. I, I think it was the right move. I mean, they they tried to pitch it as a matter of fairness, and I tend to agree. I mean, if you're looking at all NBA, um, there's definitely candidates who would either be left home or decided to stay home who could be impacted by that. And I think that it should be a level playing field. You know, you don't want to give guys an extra eight games to make a case when somebody else was basically barred from coming because their team wasn't allowed to show up. I mean, that doesn't feel fair to me. Um, I, in general, I think I like it. I think that most of those races were settled to a point. Now, would they have changed down the stretch of the season? It's absolutely possible, including with the MVP race. Uh, But to me, I think it was the, the fair move for all parties especially when you have awards tied to contract bonuses and incentives and supermaxes and all of that. I think you have to do the most fair thing, and I think they wound up doing that. So Giannis gets MVP. John Morant gets Rookie of the Year. Those, those two are probably impacted. Defensive Player of the Year, what's your answer? I would go Giannis there as well, although it's really close. I have Anthony Davis in that conversation, a few other guys. Um, you know, I tend to default to best defensive player on best defensive team. And I feel like that was Milwaukee this year. And I mean, Giannis is just a monster and uh, it would be a rare situation for a guy to win both MVP and defensive player of the year. I'm a little bit skeptical that the voters will actually do that, but uh, that would be my first inclination if I was doing it. Do you think Rudy Gobert gets negatively impacted in his voting for rookie uh, for defensive player of the year? because of all that took mm. place? I really hope not. Um, and, you know, I mean, you can make the counter-argument that so many people have talked about him that, like, maybe it's like all publicity is good publicity. Does that somehow help him? I mean, I don't know. I would I would doubt that. I mean, I, I think that – I don't know. I hope as a society we understand that we're not blaming someone for getting this type of virus, especially back then at that point when we all knew so little about it. I mean, all these months later, and I still feel like we don't have this virus really figured out. Um, We can't say for certain that he gave it to Donovan Mitchell or Christian Wood or vice versa. Um, You know, all these things are just kind of unknown. Yes, his name is always going to be synonymous with it, but I would really hope that uh, that's not changing anyone's mind. I I don't think it would. This wasn't his best defensive season, though, was it? I mean, I, I would, think he's I would, had I would stronger actually di- campaigns. I would disagree. I would. I think he was great, oh. but I watched it every night. They're the only team. Well, they're the only team in the NBA that's in the top five in denying shots at the rim and denying threes, and they allow the second fewest corner threes. And they did it with not another high-level defensive player on the roster. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, the supporting cast argument's pretty good. I mean, I. Even like compared to like a year or two ago, you still think he's, yeah. he's better than he was then? Yeah, I do. Because I think the game's changed and he's still as impactful. The other one I would tell you is mm-hmm. that the Lakers' defense is better when Anthony Davis is off the floor than on the floor, so he cannot be a defensive player of the year candidate. Yeah, that one's tricky. I got to tell you what, we could go work like at 34 minutes. We could go forever on this, and I am on an island on this one. But... I am so, and we're going to find out, and they're going to win the NBA title maybe, and then the conversation will be over. How is the Pelicans' defense better this year after Anthony Davis left? How did Anthony Davis and Drew Holiday only have one top 10 defense in all of their years in New Orleans when they're supposed to be the two best defensive players at their position? Something's not there. Well, I would I would say the wing cores for sure. I mean, like, the, the replacements that they had for him were pretty good too. You know, I mean, like Derek Favors stepping in there definitely is helpful. 
Um, I think you're being too hard on Anthony Davis. I think he's a I very too, helpful defensive player. I mean, I think he's a. Gr- I mean, he's great, right? Like, I'm hard on Anthony Davis because I judge him as whether he's one of the top four players in the NBA. And he's not. I mean, I would say that for sure he's not. Uh, if you're saying overall player or just defensive player. Well, I, I, if he was the defensive player that everyone says he is, okay, so maybe that's where I'm being unfair is I have that very high, his teams would be better defensively. Yeah, I mean, the Lakers were really good defensively this year. He played a ton of minutes for them. I hear what you're saying. But on they're the better when he's off the floor than on the floor. No, no, I hear you on the on-offs, but also, I mean, think about, like, who's on the court when Davis is off the court for the other team, you know? Like, that's you – know, it's it's a little bit of a, a different situation. He's playing all the most important minutes, and he's playing a lot of very important minutes against the, the toughest competition so, so for is, them. So is, um, Le, so is LeBron. They're 10 points better defensively when LeBron's on the floor than off the floor. They're four. They're they're two points better when Javale McGee one point five was on the floor than off the floor. They're one point five better when Danny Green's on the floor than off the floor. But when Anthony Davis is on the floor, they're two points worse. I hear you, but take him off the court for a series, and what does their defense oh, look like? It's going to well, look a lot I mean, different. I mean, he's great. Like, come on, he's a top ten player in the NBA. He's great, but he's not defense player of the year. I'm fine with Giannis. Giannis, Giannis is superhuman. I think it should be Giannis or Rudy. Is my thought. Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be those. I think those three are going to be the top three candidates uh, in terms of like votes received. I guess. I mean, who else would be on the list this year? Um, are we forgetting anyone obvious? It's been so long since I really dug into this. I mean, I think that's the hardest thing on this. My actual comment I made. Someone asked me, obviously in Utah, about Rudy. And I said he's a player you have to have seen recently to remember his impact. Having not seen him in as long as they've seen it, people have seen him. There's, I think it hurts him. Like Giannis, you can like visually be like, oh yeah, he's incredible. Like, Rudy, actually, the most incredible part about Rudy is the amount of people that drive the lane and turn around and go the other direction. You have to have seen that happen to remember how great he is. Like, that's what he, he does. Um, so to answer your question, I mean, the great I, – I generally kind of am with you on um, – I, I don't know who on, on Toronto I credit for their defense individually. Um, so I'm not sure I have an answer on that one. Um, but that would I mean, be probably nurse, you know, I mean, they're also just great. I mean, they have a, like you're saying how many uh, poor defensive players there are like on the Lakers or, or, or you know, like individual defenses or, or in other defenses. Uh, I mean, I feel like Toronto is just loaded with plus defenders at almost every position. Right. So they, you know, I think, I don't know. I think they're, uh, it was, I think those are the, you know, those are the people that are going to be talked about. Um, um, there, there was somebody else who I recently found. I'd have to look again. Whose on-off defensive numbers were stunningly good. Um, I'll, I'll see if I can find it next week. I'll, I'll bring it back up. We can, we can discuss it again. I don't have it off the. It was someone surprising on a, an elite level defensive team. It was like maybe uh, I'd have to check it. Maybe a Demonis Sabonis or somebody was like a minus six or minus eight. Like when his team was when he was on the floor, it, it was kind of surprising, right? Like you're, oh, like he may have a larger impact on why they're playing. They're a top ten defensive team than you realize. Yeah, I know that Miles Turner was like a defensive real plus minus stud this year, and he like offset it a lot with some of his offense. I'm trying to think of you know, some of the other guys who ranked really high. I feel like Patrick Beverly had a really good advanced stat um, in that category. Um, I think Jokic improved this year. I don't know. I mean. Right. Uh, most of those guys, I don't really feel like are are the you know top shelf contenders. For, Marcus, for this Marcus Soul's impact on Toronto is still significant, surprisingly. Like even though it feels like he's like slipped, he's like significantly had an impact on it. So 
Yeah, and um, he's in great shape too, which they need. And I was worried about him falling apart in the playoffs if they hadn't had the break just because of the long uh, playoff run last year plus the FIBA World Cup and all that. So you, you give him the time to rest and the time to get his body right. I think he is like kind of a sneaky X-factor um, you know, type player who could shake things up here a little bit in the Eastern Conference race or maybe he's not getting a lot of, uh, a lot of attention. So he's Ben Golliver, Washington Post. I'm David Locke. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's program. Our guy, Josh Lloyd on Locked on Fantasy Basketball is doing previews of all the teams and what to expect in the seeding games. So make sure you go follow and subscribe to Locked on Fantasy Basketball as well. On behalf of Ben, I'm David. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to Locked on NBA.